This is They Create Worlds, episode 39, Online Systems. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co host, Alex. Hello. We will now delve into the joy and wonder that is Tierra. A mountain, if their logo is anything to be the judge of. Well, it's a company that was initially established in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas in the town of Oakhurst. So it has that certain rustic quality to it that was epitomized in that famous logo with the mountain. Well, that explains that then. Episode's over. Go home, <laughs> folks. Sierra is a company that. I've had a lot of fun with. I played the King's Quest games. I particularly have said multiple times on this podcast how much I adore Tribes, <laughs> which yes. is a spinoff of one of their sub companies. Right. Sierra is one of those companies that's been around since the old days of PC software, really a long time ago, and survived a pretty long time until its absorption and semi-factual death that it is now, though I think they are coming back in a, at least the brand is, as far as some other company right now. Well, the label still exists. Right. Label exists, even though the company itself probably doesn't. No, no, the company itself hasn't existed for a long time. It was ultimately sucked up into the conglomerate that became Vivendi's interactive division. They maintained the label as a publishing label for a goodly while, but it was not a company anymore. There was no Sierra. There was just a label that they put on some of their games. Then when Vivendi merged with Activision to form Activision Blizzard, they got rid of that Sierra Entertainment label because they didn't need that label anymore because they had the Activision label now. In more recent days, Activision, which is now divorced from Vivendi, has brought back the label and has even released a new King's Quest game in recent years that was only so-so from what I hear. So the label is still around and some of the properties are still around, but no, Sierra is long gone. Well, even though we can lament its passing, it still had a lot of impact on the video game industry as a whole. And certainly a few of their franchises still influence how games are done now point-and-click adventure games, for one. Sure, I don't think there's any company that has had more of an impact and an influence on the computer game industry specifically than Sierra has. Certainly there are companies that have been more influential in video games as a whole when you take the totality of console and arcade and computer and social and mobile and everything. But pure computer games... I don't think there's any publisher that's been more influential than Sierra. They were one of the real founders of what became the standard computer game publishing model in its earliest days. They were the biggest pusher of advanced technologies like sound cards and CD-ROM drives and networked gaming at a time when nobody else was doing it. For a brief period of time, very brief, they became the company with the largest share of the computer game market in the mid-90s. So certainly a company with a 
huge impact that spanned a couple of decades. Now, I remember the mid-90s, you had Sierra Online. They were one of the first companies, I recall, really embracing the internet. Absolutely, and they even had their own network pre-World Wide Web called the Imagination Network that they literally cobbled together out of a group of networked PCs. This wasn't something like CompuServe or Genie or The Source that people were dialing into a big mainframe that was timeshared. They actually created their own hodgepodge of a network of ordinary PCs and then turned this thing loose and people could log into it like some of those other early systems like a Genie or a CompuServe. And they could play casual games. They could play even a very primitive MMO. You wouldn't have called it an MMO back then, but kind of a multiplayer role-playing game called Shadow of Euserbius. They were, yeah, very much at the forefront of that. Even before that, one of their games, and it's an unremarkable game. It's uh, some helicopter simulation. It's not important today, but back in 1987, that was one of the very first AAA computer games that allowed for multiplayer play by modem, you know, dialing into each other's computers. So, yeah, always a company that was very ahead of the curve technologically. So that's a pretty good overview. Where do they start? You said that they were in the Sierra Nevada, hence the Paramount pseudo logo thing. Sure. Sierra Online is Ken Williams, quite frankly. There's no other way to put it. That company doesn't exist without Ken Williams. That company doesn't thrive without Ken Williams. And it's when Ken Williams left the company that it very soon after fell to pieces. Ken Williams would probably be analogous to Lord British Richard Garriott as far as his origin goes, right? Not exactly, because Richard Garriott was a creative force, and mm-hmm. origin was built around Richard Garriott as a creator, someone who already had a track record of making very good games and basically didn't want to have to fight publishers for money anymore. So he joined with his brother and founded his own publisher. Creatively, Origin required Richard Garriott because they were so dependent on his Ultima series for so long. In this case, Ken Williams isn't a particularly necessarily creative person. And he's not a hacker in the traditional sense of just enjoying getting these primitive computers and tinkering with them and figuring out how they work. He's not a guy that's really a big gamer himself, but what he is, is he is very smart and he is very driven and he is a guy that wants to make as much money as he can and he figured the computer games was something that he could do that in and he's someone who always wanted to be on the cutting edge of it and always wanted to be pushing it and always wanted to be making money at it. And that's what Ken Williams is. Ken Williams entered college at a young age. I forget exactly, but it was like 16 or 17, before the the regular age, as a physics major. That's pretty amazing. Absolutely. But it turned out that it just was not going well for him. And it wasn't because he got in it too young or anything. Ken Williams is not a person who thrives well with structure and with procedure and a need to do things in a very specific kind of way. This is a recurring theme that's going to come up a couple of times here in the Sierra story. He, like so many very brilliant people, is very disorganized, very messy, and very much spur of the moment. He's hardworking and he's driven. It's just 
he was failing at this physics thing. And it wasn't because he wasn't smart enough to do the physics thing. It's just that environment didn't really work for him. So he's in school, but he's kind of failing out of it. And he chooses this as the time to get married to a girl named Roberta. They get married very young. She's 19 and he's 18. That's when they get married. It's a somewhat fast marriage in the sense that he basically just tells her one day we're going to get married. And she's basically like, okay. And this, this says something about their, their personalities. Ken Williams, very driven guy, just made the decision. And I mean, he knew her. He'd known her for years. It's not like they met just two seconds ago. And then he's like, we're getting married. But he decided that Roberta was someone he wanted in his life. And there's no point in delaying that then. If this is what I want in my life, I'm doing it now. Roberta, in those days, and I want to be clear on that, this she changed over the course of her time at Sierra some, but in those days was very meek and very passive. So she went along with it herself. I mean, she was basically like, okay, she didn't put up a fight or a struggle or anything. Not that she necessarily wanted to. I mean, they were in love and they're still married. So this is a successful marriage. I'm not trying to make it sound like she was forced into anything because she wasn't. It's just that she was more meek and passive and very much the housewife type in the traditional 1950s sense. We're talking the end of the 1970s here. We're not talking the 1950s, but she's more in the mold of that 1950s woman than she is of the 1970s women's empowerment kind of person. Like I said, she changes. I'm not trying to say that she was like that later because she becomes a real symbol of female empowerment in the video games industry and becomes known for pushing strong female protagonists in some of her games. That's an image that changes, but that's where they are at this point. This gives us a contrast to how things change later on, and it's really emphasizing the point that she's of that mindset, she's of that era, and the fact that the pair of them did get married young. I mean, Mm -hmm. today, most of the current generation generally wait longer and longer to get married. Yes. I mean, neither of us are married. Sure. That was fairly young, even for the mid to late 1970s. But there you have it. And like I said, it's a marriage that lasted. So clearly there was something there. Roberta's not doing much of anything. I mean, she was 19 and she was basically living at home, not doing much at the time they got married. Ken is a college dropout. I can't remember if he's quite dropped out at this point or if he's about to drop out, but he's a college dropout. And very soon, Roberta is pregnant. After the marriage, this was not a shotgun marriage. They did not get married young because kid was on the way. But very soon after they were married, she was pregnant. So Ken needed a job. Ken focused in on computers. Computers at this time, of course, were talking about mainframes and many computers. We're talking about institutional programming. We're talking about companies that are either creating their own software in-house or are contracting with a subcontractor that's making software for their system. He takes a course with the Control Data Institute, which is a program run by the Control Data Corporation that was very famous for its supercomputers. That's where Seymour Cray built his first supercomputers before he went off and found his great research. And so he took that course and he became a programmer. 
he liked that. He liked the control that he had over the machine, and he liked the potential that he saw to be able to make money doing that, that he could make a living with that. They're living, they're from, and they're living in Los Angeles, in the suburbs of Los Angeles. He, over the next few years, starts just moving from job to job, from company to company. Sometimes he's a consultant, sometimes he's an employee. Every time he makes a move, it's calculated to advance himself. He's moving to another job that's making him more money. This is going fairly well for them, but their real dream is to escape the city with its smog and its traffic. I mean, this is L.A. at a time when the environment wasn't so great there. I mean, it still has some problems today, but I mean, it was really bad then. This was still before we had the prohibition against lead and gasoline, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's partly why there was so much smog in L.A. is because we put lead in our gasoline. Right. They really want to live out in the country someplace. That's their goal. That's where they want to raise their children. They eventually have two children during this time period. He decides to get into the microcomputer thing when one of his brothers gets an Apple II and shows it to him. And as I said, Ken's not a hacker. He's not one of these guys that immediately wants to take it apart, see how it works, build all sorts of cool things. It's just, no, he sees, okay, now there's a computer that people can use on a desktop, and this is huge. This is going to be a market that takes off, and I can get in on the ground floor of this new market, is basically what he's thinking. So he decides that he is going to build a Fortran compiler for the Apple II. Thinking back now, looking back in hindsight, that's just nuts. The Apple II doesn't need Fortran. Fortran being the very first high-level programming language, which was developed by IBM back in 1956 and is still used today. But it's meant for engineers. It's used by engineers. It's very scientific in its structure, in its syntax. It's not a language that's going to be very useful on a microcomputer of the time just because of memory restraints, and it's not something that's very useful to the microcomputer user of the time because it's such a finicky language that really requires a lot of training to get your head around. I mean, the amateur programmers are using BASIC, and once they outgrow BASIC, they're starting to use assembly language, programming directly in the hardware like that. Over time, other languages start getting some popularity, this or that, uh, whether it be Forth or Pascal or especially C, all start having their adherence. Nobody ever really uses Fortran on microcomputers. That's just not a thing. But at the time, his thought was IBM is the gold standard in the business world, and Fortran is the language of IBM. So if the Apple II is going to be taken seriously by professionals, then it's going to need some of those same tools that are available on the professional computers like Fortran. So he has a consulting company by this point, which he's named Online Systems. It's a very generic name because he means to be a consultant in a wide variety of programming fields. He doesn't want to pigeonhole himself into any one thing. So just very generic online systems. He starts working on this Fortran compiler. And that's not the only job he's doing. He's doing other things. In one of his other jobs, he has brought home a terminal uh, hooked into a PDP-10 someplace for a company that he's working with. 
on that terminal, he shows Roberta, his wife, Adventure, the original Adventure, the classic game. She is just blown away and hooked. She spends two weeks solid playing this thing. I mean, not sleeping much, not doing much else, in, in her own words, even neglecting her two kids some, as she just obsesses over this game. She loves the sense of exploration, the sense of puzzle solving, the sense of exploring fantastic worlds. It's just, it's something she's never encountered before, and she is absolutely hooked. Is the original adventure the one that we would associate with the Atari, or is this a more expanded version? Well, no, you, you've got two different things going on here. That adventure game that's a graphical game on the Atari VCS is also an adaptation, very loose adaptation, of the original Adventure, which is a text-based game that was created in 1976 and 1977 by originally Will Crother and then expanded by Don Woods. This is a text adventure. Okay, I'm being clear about that one in case people might be associating with the right. VCS. You descend into the caving system and you're gathering treasures and avoiding that annoying dwarf that tries to steal things from you and a very, very small amount of combat stuff in, imported from D&D, not following D&D rules, but inspired by D&D, but mostly exploring, gathering items, puzzle solving, gathering treasures. It's the game that launched the entire adventure game genre <laughs> on computers. I mean, it's there are very few genres that are actually named after a game. And this is one of them. The adventure game is named after adventure. Once that game is done, once she finally solves it after two weeks or whatever, she goes out looking for more games like it. There really aren't that many. There are a few. Scott Adams down in Florida has founded a company called Adventure International by this point and has put out a few games. But there's nothing there and certainly nothing of the sophistication of adventure because that's a, a mainframe game. So finally, she decides that if there's nothing else like that, she's going to create her own. So she sits down at her kitchen table, literally, and she starts drawing out this scenario for an adventure game. And it's a murder mystery in a mansion kind of game. It's largely inspired by the Agatha Christie mystery classic, and then they were none, or Ten Little Indians, it's called both, depending on the market it's released in, about a group of people that are lured to a house out on an island and then start being murdered one by one because of dark deeds in their past. And the board game Clue, which is obvious. Someone's murdered in a house and you're going to all the rooms to gather information. It may have also been inspired, there was actually an episode of a television series that aired right around the time that she would have been designing the game that has some remarkably similar plot elements to what ended up in Mystery House. This is something that a commenter on the Digital Antiquarian noticed a few months back. She's, that's not something she's ever mentioned as uh, an influence, but it's, there's a good chance that it was, which is fine. But she creates this idea of this mystery in a, in a house where all these guests are invited and then they start dying one by one and you have to look around and gather clues and Try to figure out who done it before you end up on the chopping block yourself. She's not a programmer. She can't make this game other than designing the layout and the puzzles and the characters and all of that stuff. So she needs Ken to help her if she's going to do this. 
Ken has, like I said, no interest in games. He is a workaholic. His life is his work. He has no time or truck with this game thing. It's a really tough style. And what she finally does, she takes him out to uh, you know, steak dinner, like their favorite restaurant or whatever, and kind of wines and dines him a little bit. And then basically says, you know, just give me 10 minutes. I want to tell you about what I've been doing. And in her own words, you know, she said, and she may be exaggerating slightly. I mean, you know, stories can sometimes be stories, but they're still good stories. She says, you know, immediately his eyes start to glaze over because he's just not interested. But then she starts describing it. And after a couple of minutes, the light bulb goes off in his head and he realizes, okay, she's done something interesting here. This is something that may work, that may have a life to it. And so he becomes very involved. They decide at that dinner meeting, though, that they can't just do another text-based adventure kind of game because her game is, is simpler than adventure by necessity. They don't want to come off as just a poor imitation, essentially. They want something that is eye-grabbing that will allow their game to stand out. And so they decide then and there that this game is going to have graphics, which in the adventure game field at this point is unprecedented. Infocom is starting to release their first games like Zork. There are other adventure games that are starting to get out there, but nothing that has graphics involved with it. It's just text because you can't really store a lot of graphics on the disks of the day and on the computer systems of the day. Yeah, floppy disk, if you think about it, we're familiar with the smaller three and a half inch floppies that are 1.4 megabytes, which today seems pityingly small. <laughs> we're talking five and a half here, which is a really big thing. That's where the whole floppy part of it comes from. Right, and we're not talking double density either. We're talking about the very old, original, primitive floppies that were coming out in the late 70s. Right. These are the original kind before they thought, oh, let's supercharge these by doubling them. Now, let's put that in perspective. A 1.4, the high densities had roughly half of that. So that was 760 or so. Mm -hmm. So the high density big floppies, half of that, you're down to like 350, 360, somewhere near 360 kilobytes. That's right. Kilo with a K. And the computers of the day, we think of hard drives being so ubiquitous now too, but the microcomputers of that day did not have hard disks because hard disks were very expensive. So it's not like you could compress a huge amount of stuff on your floppy and then have someone install that all to a hard drive and then have it open up and, and take up more space that way. Because these computers don't have hard drives. Right. All these computers of this generation, you had next to it a case with a whole bunch of floppies that had whatever program it was that you wanted to run. There was no operating system per se. You just booted it up, you put in your floppy disk and said load disk or some variation thereof with yeah. basic, things. basic was essentially the operating system. Yep. <laughs> and your program launched. So you wanted to play a game, you put a floppy disk in, you Tell it, load game, and away you go. So whatever could fit on that disc. So we're trying to put a game with graphics on 
360 some odd kilobytes. Exactly. And keep in mind, a single letter of text is a byte. Right. That's 8 bits. A letter of text is a byte. So we're saying 360,000 letters. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there were, of course, graphical games. There were simple action games and simple role-playing games that had graphics. But in an adventure game, you're talking about a game with dozens, if not hundreds, of individual rooms. And each one of these rooms would need its own fairly unique graphic to represent that room. It's not like doing a wizardry where you just have a simple wireframe and you occasionally pop a monster graphic in, or even an Ultima where you use a tile-based system where you can use the same tiles over and over and over again to generate the world. You kind of have to have unique art for every single location. And so that was just not possible. That's why games with a big exploration element, like adventure games that take place in these big, somewhat unique worlds, couldn't do graphics. So Ken Williams' big breakthrough to get graphics into Mystery House is that you don't store the graphics on the disk. You store the programming commands to draw the graphics on the screen in real time. Ah, yes. The old trick. Mm-hmm. We have um, Elite, which is a famous game, took advantage of this. It models graphically the entire galaxy. Mm-hmm. That's not going to fit on a disc. Right. However, the mathematics to draw the entire galaxy will fit on a disc. Mm-hmm. Whatever sort of algorithms you have, which whatever the preset sheet is mm-hmm. that would make our galaxy appear and do whatever it is it does, that can fit on a disc. So the fact that you have math that just redraws it as opposed to whatever you're doing where you have it drawn before and then you're displaying the image because you, then you have to, you're bitmapping it. You have to keep in mind, okay, I have this size screen. I need to have a pixel here, 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 and mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. The math side of it is a fantastic way of just compressing it without compressing it. Exactly. So every time you play Mystery House, the game that they made, it actually is drawing those graphics each time you get to a new screen and you actually watch the entire image literally fill in one line at a time because it's being commanded to draw in that moment. And that's how you get the space to do that. So the graphics are exceedingly primitive. It's stick figures and it's line art and it's all sorts of funky colors because we discussed how the Apple, when you have thin lines, can't do pure black and white because pixel color is influenced by the pixel's next to the line as a memory-saving technique that Steve Wozniak used. So you get these strange purple and green hues here and there because of that. So it's, it's primitive art, but it's art in a genre that has never had it before. And I would certainly think that the fact that it slowly draws up there helps with a little bit of a mystery suspense thing. You're mm-hmm. going... Okay, I'm going into this new room. It slowly draws in on me as to what's going on. Is that a person with a knife? Or is that just a person there with a hot cup of cocoa? Kind of like how uh, Resident Evil created tension on its loading screens by having you walk up to that door that opens into the blackness. And it's like, what am I going to see in the next room? (laughs) Exactly. That kind of thing. (laughs) Sure. 
the graphics were largely just still pictures. It was still largely a text adventure. You still had a parser. You still typed commands with the parser. But it was slightly interactive graphics. They weren't just background. For instance, in one of the first rooms, there is a note that is in the room that you have to pick up and read, and it gives you some information. When you walk into that room, maybe you start in the room, I'm not sure, but in that room, there's nothing in the text description to say that there is a note in the room. The only indication that there's a note in the room is there is a rectangle that literally says note on the screen as an image. And then when you take the note, when you command to take the note, the note vanishes from the screen when it goes into your inventory. There's not a lot of that. There's, it's mostly just still pictures that don't have much of an effect on gameplay. But the fact that there is occasionally an object that is not described by the text and that when you manipulate it, it actually properly vanishes from the room. That is a huge leap forward. It may not sound like much, but that is mind-boggling for 1980, which is when this game is released. Yeah, and more games took advantage of that as time went on. More and more games, you go around searching for things, and you have effectively a static image there, but then the image changes based on what you've done as a player. Sure. That comes out in 1980, and it does... All right, it does maybe 20,000 units, which for the very early period here is, is very good. That sounds paltry, but that's pretty darn good for 1980. The interesting thing is, when it comes time to publish it, when it comes time to put it out, they first try to go to already existing publishers. But as we've talked about before, at this period of time, the majority of the publishers were these companies that just sourced whatever programs they could find from whatever amateur programmers they could find and just threw it out on the marketplace, often not really paying much attention to the quality. So for every good and solid and excellent product they release, they might release two or three clunkers because they're not serving as a curator in the way that a publisher would that we think of today, where they actually evaluate product, greenlight product, fund product, and then publish product. It's not like that. They're just throwing product out there. So the biggest of these companies at the time, the first really big computer software publisher, and I use the term big loosely, we're talking big in late 1970s terms, is Programma International. They do a good business in games, but they're also putting out utilities and languages, probably, and, and all of that stuff, too. Ken just doesn't like the deal that Program is offering. So he decides, we're going to do this ourselves, and we're going to publish this on our own. In the primitive way that was done at the time, Ziploc baggies and everything. They're not doing boxes. <laughs> we're not to that phase yet. He sources another game, like a little skeet shooting game or something that, that a friend he knows does, so that they feel more like a real company because they have two products, but it's really about selling Mystery House. So Online Systems becomes a computer game publisher, just like that, with those first couple of products. And they sell about 20,000 units, which, like I said, is pretty good for the time. After that, for her second game, Roberta takes things a little bit further. Their second game is called The Wizard and the Princess. This time, instead of just having these black and white stick figures, they're going to have full-color graphics. They do it using some of those same kind of tricks. They come up with a draw-and-fill routine. 
So first it draws the outlines of everything on the screen, and then it gives the command to fill in the colors. Just like if you're having a paint program, you take out your pencil first and sketch your lines, and then you take out your paint bucket icon and click inside all of those shapes you've just made to create a solid color within that set of lines. That's what they're doing again in real time on the computer screen on your Apple II with Wizard and the Princess is this draw and fill command. So for the first time, they have these colorful graphics. Now, they're, they're not very good. This is still the Apple. Well, it's not just that it's the Apple. It's that these aren't professional artists really doing this either. The graphics will, of course, be putting up some videos and whatnot in the show notes, as we always do. The graphics are pretty dodgy. I mean, it looks... It, it doesn't look like something a first grader did, but it probably looks like something that a fourth or fifth grader did. <laughs> you know, it's programmer art, and there's not a lot of sophistication to it, but it's stunning compared to no art. Yep. <laughs> so, For a time in the land of the blind, the seeing man is king. <laughs> that's right. So this game really takes the world by storm does 60,000 units, which, again, it's phenomenal for that time period. And by founding this company and releasing these games, they're able to realize their dream and move into the Sierra Nevada foothills. And so Online Systems sets up in Oakhurst, which is just uh, not even sure it's a one-stoplight town. It's a very small community. It gets a little bit of tourist trade because it's kind of on the way to Yosemite National Park. And so it's one of these places that sometimes people will stop at when they're moving to and from the National Park. But it's a sleepy town, Oakhurst. There's not much going on there. Pretty soon, obviously, Sierra becomes a very big deal in that town because... There's nothing like that. This is a little bit of Silicon Valley in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So that's how online systems gets formed. Over the next few years, Ken really grows the company aggressively by offering a very competitive royalty to programmers and casting a broad net for talent, often young men and enticing them with this royalty and trying to get them on staff as much as possible. He does freelancers too, but he gets them on staff if he can and actually has them move out to Oakhurst. So this is a shift from what we've seen with these early companies like Programma International. This is no longer, let's just find every program we can and just throw it out there in the world. This is, let's target talented people, identify and target talented people with a good royalty. And then let's bring them into the company as much as we can so they're part of the publisher. Sierra is not the only one necessarily doing this at the time. This is something that's beginning to happen. But they are really one of the first because even amongst the other second wave of publishers, a lot of them are founded by, as we've talked before, kind of a, a programmer and a more business-oriented guy coming in together and really doing it just for themselves. And then, yeah, they start getting some outside submissions. And then so they start publishing some things that other people are doing too. But Broderbund is really founded around the Carlston brothers. And it grows beyond them, but it's really founded around them. And Sirius Software, which was the other one of kind of the big three 
in these early days, along with Sierra and Broderbund, was really founded around Nasir Gabelli, who was just such a brilliant hotshot Apple II programmer. And they start doing other stuff too, but it's really founded around them. Or Scott Adams founds Adventure International because he needs an outlet to sell his games. And he slowly starts bringing in some other games, but it's really about him. Even though Online Systems is founded around Roberta Williams's games that she's designed, from the very beginning, from the very beginning when they just sourced that silly little skeet shooting game to make sure that they had more than one product, it was always about bringing in other talent and bringing in as much talent as possible so that they could get as big as possible and make as much money as possible. And that's the difference. This wasn't a hobbyist founding a company to enable his programming habit. This was a laser-focused businessman, but a technically-minded businessman that is saying, this is going to be big, let's get in, let's make money. And so that's, that's online systems. So really what I'm hearing here is that the driving force behind this company is really a businessman as opposed to the other ones that we typically cover where the driving force start the company is a creative person trying to get this going. Sure. And obviously there's a creative side to this too, because I'm not trying to diminish Roberta Williams's agency. Obviously, Roberta wanted to make these games and Roberta convinced her husband to help her make these games. But I don't think Roberta was the driving force behind making them a publisher. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm speculating, I haven't talked to her and I don't know that she's ever spoken of this, but I wouldn't be surprised if she would have been just as content to release her game through an existing publisher. I could be wrong about that. Maybe she was as financially driven as Ken, and if so, fair enough. But I just really get the sense that that's the kind of thing that Ken was after. He wasn't a businessman. You see, Ken was in between worlds. We talk about how a lot of things are done by creative and a lot of things are done by a business person, and you kind of need both and they have to be in balance and all of this stuff. We've talked about that before. That's one of my central tenets. Ken was not really a business person. He didn't have any training there, and he really wasn't big on corporate structure or any that kind of thing. What he was was an ambitious person that wanted to make money, which is a little different from a business person. So he has a little bit of that business instinct, but he's not a business person. He is a computer programmer, so he knows the technical side, but he's not a gamer, hacker, enthusiast type like a Richard Garriott, or like a Doug Carlston, or like a Nasir Gabelli. He got into programming to make money. He didn't get into programming to have fun making games. So he's not a creative. But he's not really a business person. Right. He's some sort of weird hybrid. Exactly. And that's part of what made online systems unique in the very early days, because it was kind of conceived as this money-making machine from the beginning, where a lot of these other publishers founded by a creative and a business person obviously wanted to make money or they wouldn't have started a business, but it was more built around having a commercial outlet for a creative side. While there's a little bit of that to the online system story, because Roberta did create a game, obviously, it's just a little different. At first, it's interesting. He also, in addition to creating one of the very first computer game publishers in a way that we would recognize it today, as opposed to these programma-type companies, he also establishes modern computer game distribution, single-handedly. 
that's really not an exaggeration because he very quickly decides after he starts selling his own games and he brings in one of his brothers to spearhead that, not the one that introduced him to the Apple II originally, that was a different brother, but he brings in his brother, John, and he becomes kind of the person making the sales calls. He later becomes very involved in marketing more than sales. John Williams, no relation to that other John Williams, becomes almost as integral a part of the company as Ken and Roberta are. He has John starting to do sales calls and whatnot all over the country. And so now that they're starting to sell in to stores around the country, he decides to act as an agent for other small publishers that need to get distribution for their games as well. So he essentially turns online systems into a hybrid publisher and distributor. It's not an affiliated label program in the way that EA or Activision would do an affiliated label program several years later because they're not involved on the same level. They're basically just like, you know, we're selling all this other stuff, we'll sell your stuff too. I mean, they're taking a cut, obviously, but it's, it's a very loose kind of relationship. He finally decides that that's too much. As the company continues to grow as a publisher, he decides they can't be a publisher and a distributor both. So he has a friend from back in the day named Bob Leff and sells him. He's like, I've got this distribution business. I can't really do it anymore. Do you want it? And Bob Leff's like, sure, I'll take that. And that's the beginning of Soft Cell. And Soft Cell was the computer game and computer program distributor in the 1980s. I mean, before companies like Electronic Arts that were both publishers and distributors all in one kind of start pushing those companies out, Soft Cell was the computer game distributor. And even after Electronic Arts pushed them out under a name change of Maricel, they still remained a major player in distribution of other computer software, even into the early 1990s. That was literally started from Sierra's distribution network that Ken decided he didn't have time to run anymore. You can only imagine what would have happened if he still had it. (laughs) Sure. Though it was the right move for him at the time because he couldn't do it all. And this comes back to our discussion about how Ken was very brilliant and very driven, but was not much of a structure guy. He was bad at running a company. And what I mean by that is paying attention to all the nuts and bolts of running a company. He very much wanted to be in control. He was hesitant to let somebody else do it because he was a bit of a control freak. One of the things he liked about programming is the control he had over the computer. So he didn't like to delegate necessarily. But at the same time, he kind of needed to delegate some of the more day-to-day mundane tasks of running a business because he just wasn't good at it. His office was always a mess, piles of things on top of piles of things. It was hard to find contracts. It was kind of hard to keep that day-to-day functioning reliably at online systems in the early days. He would make a very good CEO, and he needed a president to work with him to just run the nuts and bolts part of it, while he, as a CEO, did the, I want to do this, I want to do this, let's do this, let's make sure our product's good. You still have a president that is handling the minutia of just letting the business go and how do you, okay, yes, we need this contract. Yes, we need this business plan. Yes, we need to find this financial whatever. That's exactly correct. He really couldn't run both. So, I mean, it it wasn't a, a bad decision to get out of distribution, but yeah, it is an interesting what if. 
So the company has uh, success with several products in the 1981-1982 period. They're not just doing adventure games. Obviously, Roberta Williams games remain some of their flagship products. They also have a couple other guys doing adventure games. But they're doing action games. They're doing shooters. They're doing maze games. They're doing arcade ports, both authorized and unauthorized. Because that's a very big part of the computer game market at this time. During this period before the arcade industry crashed, obviously the arcade games were all huge hits. And so people wanted to play them at home, whether that be on their Atari VCS or on their Apple II. So pre-arcade crash, the simple action games were as big a part of the computer game industry as the more cerebral games like the adventure games and the computer RPGs. After the crash, that basically stopped in the United States. In the UK, as we always give that caveat, people are probably sick of me saying this, but we know it wasn't like that across the pond, that those action games became the bread and butter of the 8-bit computer market on that ZX Spectrum and on that C64. In the US, there was kind of a pretty strict dividing line pre-crash, post-crash, and obviously there were some action games after the crash. It's never absolute, but that's where that divide happened and where companies like Sierra stopped focusing on action games at all. But before the crash, they were very into action games. And they got onto the Atari 800 very quickly. They recognized that this was a platform that was a very superior games platform to the Apple II, just because it had better graphics and it had sprites and all of these things that just facilitate games. And they made contact with a very talented young programmer named John Harris, who kind of became their star on that Atari 800. And they were getting a lot of play out of that Atari 800 market, too, in addition to their Apple II market. They also uh, had a pretty good break when they had a guy out in New England named Chuck Benton, who was an engineer for a flight simulator company that needed to learn some programming because he had kind of alerted his superiors that this Apple II had come out and that there were these computers, these microcomputers you could get and could save the company some time. And they were like, that, that sounds great. Why don't you program something to do that? And he's like, uh-oh, because he's an engineer. He's not a programmer. So he needs to teach himself how to program. To do that, he creates himself a little uh, text adventure. He decides to make it a little bit naughty. Mm. And so he creates this game called Soft Porn Adventure. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's a, about a guy that's basically trying to get women to sleep with him. He brings it to Sierra, and Sierra publishes it. The thing about it is it's, it's very popular for the day. It sells very well because it's, it's kind of titillating for the teenagers that are on these computers. But the thing is... At least according to the book Hackers, which actually has a very substantial portion of the book dedicated to the early days of Sierra, distributors and retailers were kind of embarrassed to just order soft porn. They needed to order it because their customers wanted it, but they felt kind of awkward just ordering that. So when they ordered soft porn, they would also order a bunch of other Sierra games. So they could say, I'll take uh, some Wizard and the Princess, and I'll take some Jawbreaker, and I'll take some this, and I'll take them that, and, and uh, slip in some Soft Porn Adventure. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> you can just add that on the end. It's like, well, since I'm ordering from you anyway, I'll take a few copies of this too. I'll take everything from on the list from 1 through 22, sir. Number 22 is Soft Porn. One through 23. <laughs> yeah. So it, it really spurred sales of the entire catalog because of this hesitance to just order that one game. So that was a real driver in the 81, 82 period. And so the company is taking off 
pretty big at this point for a computer game company. This is not Atari. This is not Activision. This is not Mattel. They're not competing on that level. This, the market's much smaller. But for a computer game company, they're on fire. They and Broderbund and Sirius are the three companies that are really driving the computer game market more than any other. And so at this point, they intersect with a venture capital firm called TA Associates. It's one of the very early venture capital firms founded back in the late 60s. One of the partners there, Jackie Morby, a woman, Jackie is short for Jacqueline in this case, decides that she thinks computer games are going to be a very profitable thing. That's going to be kind of the next big thing in entertainment, very much the same way that Ken Williams had made that decision a couple years before. So TA Associates starts looking for places that they can put money in. So rather than this being a situation where Sierra goes out and seeks venture funding, this is a case where the venture funding actually comes to them because Jackie researches this market and discovers that Sierra is one of the big companies in this market. And so she comes to them and says, we want to invest in your company. And they accept. So they take venture money from TA Associates. This ends up being a very mixed thing. On the one hand, money's good. You need money to grow. And a growing company never has enough capital because you're always reinvesting everything you make, no matter how much it is, right back into the company. You're not profiting very much. But they do require, require maybe too strong a word, but they do suggest some changes and some moves in different directions that don't always work out well. Online systems at this time is like one giant frat party that never ends. Because what they've done is they've gotten all of these young programmers, because they're all teenagers, early 20s types, almost all of them. They're living communally in these dorms because there's not housing in Oakhurst. I mean, there are some houses, but this isn't a, a big city. So Sierra has actually built a couple of dormitories to house their programmers. They put, they put them up there. So you've got these dormitories full of young guys with all of this freedom. And it's a pretty wild place. It's like a college town without the college. <laughs> no kidding. And I mean, there are female employees there, too. Uh, according to hackers, again, it's like 50% of the company, 50% uh, of the people in the company or something like that were involved with somebody that was in the company. Because obviously there's a lot of support staff and whatnot that are women. The programmers aren't women. So, I mean... It's a pretty wild place. And we already talked about how Ken Williams isn't a structure guy. So it's a little bit chaotic in the way it's being run, too. So the venture capitalists try to get them to be a little more serious. They bring in new managers and they bring in a new president. It's actually a president that Ken brings in himself. I mean, they recommend that he needs some help, but he's the one that brings in the president. It's not somebody that they force on him. He brings in a guy named Dick Sutherland, who he had worked for at a company called Informatics, which is one of the companies he had worked at. He was kind of an older fuddy-duddy type, but he was an administrator. He knew how to organize things. The new managers and the new layers of bureaucracy really don't help anything. It, it turns out that Dick and Ken clash constantly, and Ken, being the control freak that he is, doesn't really want to let it go. And some of the other managers brought in and the bureaucracy they bring just don't really help things. So that's kind of bad. A lot of that structure actually goes right back out the window again within a year or two. The other thing that they do is that they really encourage the company to get into the cartridge market because that's where the money is. Because with floppy disk games, there are a couple of things going on. First, piracy. 
lots of piracy. Also, the margins aren't as good because the, the margins are just insane compared to what's going on in floppy disks. So it's both greater sales volume and greater margins on the product you do sell. So obviously they want to make the money and Ken wants to make the money. So he goes along with this. Not to mention cartridges allow you to do more capabilities with the games because mm -hmm. you can literally use, like say on the Commodore 64, you plug in the cartridge and you can actually take advantage of memory on the cartridge right. when you're doing your game and displaying things. Right. So they decide they're going to get in the cartridge market. When I say the cartridge market, I don't just mean the video game market. Because this is the period of time when computers like Commodore's VIC-20, the predecessor to the C64, and Texas Instruments TI-99 are coming into the market. So you have home computers that are incorporating cartridge slots and incorporating cartridge games. And we've talked about this before, about how for a period of time it really looked like you were going to have these cheap home computers like the VIC-20 with their cartridge ports kind of overtake the video game consoles that were more limited and more primitive and yet sometimes more expensive. They do a little bit of stuff on like the ColecoVision and whatnot. They start creating some video game content, but they also are really investing heavily in that VIC-20 market and making cartridges for the Commodore computer. Well, turns out that the home video game market crashes. Yep. And then it turns out that the VIC-20 is destroyed utterly and completely by Jack Trammell's price war in the home computer market because he brings out the C64 and the C64 becomes the flagship and he keeps cutting the price maniacally on the VIC-20 and on the C64, but especially the VIC-20 because it's a cheaper product to drive all of his other competitors in the home computer space out of the business. Even though Commodore does really well, the VIC-20 really doesn't. And so he's stuck with this unsellable console inventory, and he's stuck with this unsellable VIC-20 inventory. The thing about cartridges versus floppy disks that's bad is that with floppy disks, they're easy to create, they're easy to copy data onto, so you can make those floppy disks right before you're ready to release your game, and you can create a limited number then, see how the game sells, and get reorders out very quickly if the game sells well. The lead time on cartridges is huge because you're burning ROMs. And so you have to order your cartridges like six months before you're actually selling them. And you have to guess how many you're going to sell, because if you make too few and your game ends up being really popular, you won't have time to do another order of cartridges before that game is no longer popular, because the game does most of its sales in the first two or three months. By the time you know you have a hit, there isn't enough time to create more cartridges. So you have to guess six months before your game is released how well it's going to do. So they had all this inventory. And then they didn't have a market for the inventory by the time it was time to release those games. This nearly kills the company, and that is not an exaggeration. This company nearly dies. They lay off a bunch of staff. I think they were up over 100 at this point, and they brought it back down to a key group of like 20 or 30 or something. I mean, they had to eliminate most of the staff. They had just moved into a brand new building. They had their landlord at their previous location build them a brand new building that they would then lease. So suddenly they had a huge lease on a big building that they couldn't really afford to pay anymore. 
they had a contract already in place. I mean, they had a commercial lease already in place. They couldn't just say, on second thought, we're not moving into your building. It's like, no, <laughs> that 25000 a month rent that they agreed to, they're going to have to pay. They tried to offer him, the landlord, some stock in the company in exchange for missing a few months' rent, but he won the money because he yeah. didn't think Sierra was going to be around. So 10% of nothing is nothing in his mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, you can't say that in hindsight he should have taken the deal because there was no reason to believe that there would be a Sierra online in two years. Or a Sierra. Exactly. That does bring up, I should say, that the company was now Sierra Online, and this was another legacy of the venture capitalists, of TA Associates. Online Systems was a very generic name deliberately because it wasn't any kind of company other than a broad computer consulting company when it was established. The venture capitalists said, we need something less generic. So they chose Sierra because they were in the Sierra foothills and this whole idea of this company out in the woods making games. And then they kept the online from online systems so that there would be continuity. So people would realize it's the same company. So Sierra Online. The venture capitalists at this point pretty much want to wash their hands of this. They see the company going down in flames too, but they want to try to salvage what they can. So they come up with a deal where Sierra will merge with another company called Spinnaker Software, which was largely focused on education products, to create a bigger company and a more diversified company. They're in games, they're in education, etc., that maybe between them can weather this. Ken Williams is ready to do this. He is ready to sign on the dotted line. This is where Roberta comes in and does her thing. And like I said, th this is no longer the meek Roberta of times past. She's changed some. She's been empowered some by this experience at this company. She and Ken are the, the co-owners. I mean, she's a co-owner too. She refuses to do the deal. Ken would have done it. She refuses. You know why? Well, yeah, she just, it's their baby. She doesn't want to see it combined and carved up and controlled by a bunch of venture capitalists that don't care. It's her baby. So they don't do the deal, even though she knows that that very well might mean that there is no Sierra Online in another year. She would rather take that chance than see some strange combination offshoot thing live on that isn't really Sierra. They don't do the deal. The, the venture capitalists get the heck out of things, and, and they're left basically adrift. But they have a couple of things going for them. One thing about Ken Williams is that his heroes are Jim Henson and Walt Disney. That's very interesting because Jim Henson and Walt Disney are both people that had some degree of technical talent in their chosen field. Jim Henson in puppeteering and Walt Disney in animation. But neither one were really the most talented person in the room when it came to those technical skills. What made them great was their ability to build empires around their niche. Walt Disney was a passable animator, but he was a brilliant creator of an animation studio. Same with, with Jim Henson with, with puppetry. And he wanted to be associated with some of these kinds of people. He wanted to build relationships with the big boys. 
the boys that he admired. And so he had actually gotten in with Jim Henson. It was through Sesame Street. The Children's Television Workshop approached him first. They didn't end up doing anything with him. But then they put him in touch with Jim Henson, who was at the time creating the Dark Crystal. And actually, the Dark Crystal game didn't do very well. But it's interesting that they had this connection with Jim Henson. They ended up with a connection with Walt Disney, because when Texas Instrument got out of the business due to Jack Trammell's price war, they had the computer license for Disney products. So because they suddenly went out of business and they needed someone else to take it over, the rights were available for a song. They were available for much less than they normally would be. And so Williams swooped in and grabbed the home computer game rights for Disney, which they held for a couple of years. And those Disney games, I don't think any of them were particularly great or memorable, but they kind of helped keep the lights on during this period of time. But then the big thing is he wanted to be associated with IBM because IBM was still the gold standard when it came to computers. They weren't in the home quite yet, but they're the gold standard in computers. IBM is about to come out with the PC. The original PC. The one everyone makes clones of to this day. (laughs) That's right. It was conceived of as primarily a business machine, but they wanted a little bit of something in every field. Just so that they had proof that you can do this with it, you can do that with it. So they partnered with Sierra to port Wizard and the Princess, that first big hit they had that we talked about earlier, to the original IBM PC. And then IBM published it on that computer as uh, Adventures in Serenia. They changed the name of it, but it's the exact same game. Well, that didn't do much for them because the PC was not a game system. But then in 1983, when IBM decided that they were going to get in on this home computer thing with their PC Junior, it was released in 1984, but they're obviously conceiving it earlier than that. They definitely want games on that because this is their answer to the Commodore 64 and the Atari 800 and all of these home computers. They want games on that. And they've already got this relationship with Sierra, which Ken Williams was very careful and eager to cultivate. And so they came to Sierra again. Ken and his lead technical guy, Jeff Stevenson, flew out to see the IBM people. By this time, Ken's too busy running the company to do a lot of the programming himself, so kind of Jeff Stevenson has become the new main programming guru. They go out and they meet with IBM, and they say, we want a game that really showcases how the PC Junior is different and better than the other games on the market. So we don't want one of these primitive draw and fill static picture linear adventure games that you've been doing. What we want, and and they're the ones pitching this, IBM's the one pitching this, we want something that is more colorful, that is more animated, that is bigger, that has a little bit less strict linearity to it, that has multiple solutions to puzzles, just to show what our new PC Junior can do. And so Ken says, yeah, sure, we can do that. And then when he gets back, when he and Jeff get back, the company's in near revolt because they're like, are you kidding? No, we can't. (laughs) Just because it's too difficult. I mean, just the amount of work involved and all of this. Not that they wouldn't necessarily want to, but it's just, we can't do this. But once again, Roberta to the rescue here, because Roberta Williams 
sees this as an opportunity to grow herself too. And she sees the potential of this and she really wants to do this. So Roberta says, I will do this. And that's very interesting because just a, a couple of years before, she had been completely burnt out on adventure games. In 1982, she made a game called Time Zone that was ridiculously large. It, it was too large. It was thousands of rooms. It came on like eight double-sided floppies or something ridiculous like that. It cost $99 to buy. Oh, dear. In 1982 money. That's insane. And it wasn't a very good game. Roberta Williams' early game design was really not all that good, <laughs> quite frankly. A lot of arbitrary ways to die and arbitrary puzzle solutions and, and things that just don't work very well. So Time Zone was not a good game. It was large, but it wasn't good. And most of those thousands of rooms were empty. I mean, there were only a few rooms that were actually important. Still probably more than most adventure games, but it's not like every one of those thousands of rooms had stuff. She gave an interview after she made that game saying that, I'm not sure I will make another adventure game. She was so burned out on Time Zone. And then after Time Zone, she was involved in games like Dark Crystal and some of the Disney stuff where a lot of what she was doing was dictated by the company. She didn't have full creative control because it's a licensed property. And so she was just kind of burned out. And again, I, I don't know this directly from her, but I have to imagine that when she'd reached this level of burnout, to be handed something new and different as a challenge and something she'd be able to shape herself probably reinvigorated her a little bit. And so she became a champion for this. So Jeff Stevenson created the game engine. Adventure Game Interpreter, and Roberta created the game. She was very much influenced. She loved fairy tales and that kind of thing. So she was very influenced by that. And so there are a lot of fairy tale characters in it, characters like Rumpelstiltskin and, and Goldilocks and whatnot are actually in the game. And Dracula? Not in the first one, but yeah, in later games. You know, she takes all sorts of characters from fairy tales and from literature and, and from all of this that are all in the public domain, so she can't get sued for it, and populates her game worlds with them. But she creates this fairy tale kind of universe, which fits in with the fact that they're doing this animated thing. So it's, it's bright and colorful and animated and, and almost feels like a storybook world compared to the games of the past. They do this engine with a little bit of an isometric slant to it. And again, they do this very cleverly. It has a Z-axis where you can actually move in front of objects or move behind objects and that kind of thing. But they don't do full Z coordinates. What they do is they just have, they have 14, I think it is, layers. And so they just designate 14 spots on the screen, and then individual objects can be placed in layer one or layer two or layer three or layer four. They don't have to do Z coordinates, which saves them some memory, but they can create a depth to the world in addition to all that other stuff. They do King's Quest for the PC Junior. It's released in 1984. It looks like it's going to be the company's final mistake. Hmm. Because once again, Sierra has backed the wrong horse. The PC Junior is a miserable failure. It's far more expensive than the other home computers on the market. The home computer market is collapsing, so it's not the time to be creating a more expensive product in a market where people are starting to not buy in anymore. It has a horrific keyboard, horrific chiclet keyboard. They're trying to save money. 
It's hard to think of keyboards today as being one of the most expensive parts of your computer, but mechanical yeah. keyboards back then were very expensive. Well, they're still expensive now. Most sure. keyboards today are membrane keyboards. They are. With our cheaper, easier to make, and that's why you can just pop off to your local electronics store and say, hey, old merchant, here's a $10 bill. That's true. Though even, even back then, I think mechanical keyboards were more expensive than they are today, adjusted for inflation. Right. And a Chiclet keyboard is a membrane keyboard, but nobody back then had figured out the clever way of using real touch-type buttons on top of a membrane. So if you had a membrane keyboard, you were touching directly on the membrane. You couldn't touch-type with that. It's a horrific keyboard, and then it has some of these advanced graphical features compared to the regular PC, but it's not fully compatible with a real PC. My PC software will not work on a PC Junior. Right, some of it will. But very little. But a lot of it won't. And so you're not capturing the people that think it might be nice to have a cheaper PC in the home so they can take some of their work home because it's not compatible. You're not capturing the people that think a home computer is a neat idea because A, very few of those people are around anymore, and B, it's far more expensive than the competition. In some ways, it may be more capable than the competition, but <laughs> not in every way. Uh, Commodore 64 has a real keyboard, folks. Yes, it does. <laughs> and we love you. Apple II has a real keyboard, folks. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't. So they're trapped because they've released for the PC Junior. And the thing is, the PC Junior, one of its claims to fame is it has 128K of memory. Since King's Quest was meant to be a showcase for the computer and was meant to provide an experience that could not be done on other computers... King's Quest was made as a 128K game. Well, your Commodore 64 is right out. Because that 64 says it right in the title. Mm -hmm. 64K of memory. And Apple II can be expanded to 128K, but very, 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 very few people have taken their Apple II beyond 64K because memory's expensive. Right. And your only other option is to maybe throw it on a cartridge in order to give it that extra memory, but... Even then, that's really expensive. Well, and then Apple isn't a cartridge machine. You know? That too. Yeah. And right, you would, it's, well, no, but even a Commodore 64 cartridge, I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to have the RAM in the cartridge because we're talking about the need for 128K of RAM memory. Oh, right. So that's we're not talking even about more ROM. complicated. Right. So it's not like you could just put an expanded ROM cartridge into a C64 to make that work because the program requires 128K of RAM. You need to be able to push 128K into that computer at one time. You know, all of these computers are right out. You can really only do it on a PC. So it's not like they could say, well, that market didn't develop. Let's port it to the C64. Right. It's amazing that we think of 128K of RAM being hard when we have, in this room, my main system has 16 gigabytes of RAM on it. Amazing. Bill Gates once very famously said, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't see why anyone would ever need more than 64K. Yep. <laughs> this, was, this was kind of the standard in the home. So uh, no other computers were really doing 128K. Even the ones that were capable of it, technically, people weren't upgrading to that amount of memory. King's Quest is dead on arrival in 1984. It looks like the company is going to be well and truly gone. 
but the company ends up pulling through. And the reason for that is something we will go into in the second part of this look at the history of Sierra. So obviously next time we're going to be talking about Sierra. Part two. Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo? Don't worry about it. Okay. Someone out there might get that. And if you do, email me and tell me what it is. <laughs> we have covered part one, the trek from L.A. off to the Sierra Nevadas, looking at the mountain. And now they don't have a mountain anymore. It is just a hole. That's right. A hole that they're desperately trying to dig out of. But they will, because there is still a lot more Sierra history to tell. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.